The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. What are some things that just should not be separated? that they are just better together, okay? I'm sure you guys came up with a lot of things. No doubt one of those things, the layup for me is something I make every morning for my three-year-old son uh, as he goes off to preschool, and that's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, okay? A peanut butter and jelly sandwich is better than just a jelly sandwich or just a peanut butter sandwich, imho, okay? It's better together, right? Okay, uh, other things that that are just, they're better when they are not separate, but together. How about Mumford and Sons? You really can't have the Sons without Mumford and have it be the same thing, nor can you just have the Sons without Mumford, even though I know that's not really their names. Yeah, it just makes me sad to think of, of Mumford and Sons not together, right? They can't be separate. And then, of course, uh, you got you to go with Disney couples, right? I mean, if some of these couples, if they're not together, your childhoods are probably fundamentally different. If, if Nala doesn't meet Simba, some of you may not be here right now. Okay, that's, that's, all, that's all I'm saying. Of course, Mickey and Minnie. Did I cross the line right there? Did I go too far? No, Jacob says I'm clear. I'm good. Yeah. You see, when... Some of these things that we really treasure, we think about them separated, it just doesn't seem right. And of course, I'm talking about things that are a lot more significant than merely a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. My guess is that some of you know what I'm talking about, that there have been times perhaps in your dating lives where you put a tremendous amount of energy into trying to make sure that things stayed together, that you didn't separate. Perhaps... Uh, if you're anything like me, uh, I remember even as a young child, the amount of anxiety and the amount of tension I felt as, as I began to watch my parents' de- marriage deteriorate and, and eventually led to a separation and a divorce. It can create great anxiety when there are things that, that should be together that we see begin to separate. And of course, I think it's a pretty natural reaction that many of us in this room have experienced when we begin to experience that tension. It's a natural reaction for us to go, what do I need to do to hold things together? What do I need to do to hold myself together? Well, as we get into what I want to uh, get into tonight, as we come to the book of Romans, is addressing that question. How are we held together? Where does our energy go when that moment happens? So tonight we continue a look at one of the most important chapters, at one of the most important pieces of philosophy and theology that's ever written. Now, I didn't give give it that that distinction, But people a whole bunch smarter than me have given it that distinction. We're talking about Romans 8. And so because it's been given uh, words like that, my guess is that they're words that we need to listen to. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, 
uh, perhaps you remember that I shared about the beginning of Romans 8, simply calling us to remember that there is, there is no charge brought against us. There's no condemnation. In fact, we are set free by the voluntary uh, action of Jesus Christ that sets us free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I believe Paul was simply calling us to remember that. Remember that. Then last week, Janie led us through the middle of this passage and, and helped us uh, to see that God makes us children. God loves us with the love of a father that makes us children. Children of God who share in the promises and the life of this God who loves us so much that God would voluntarily die for us in Jesus. So tonight I want to finish this amazing chapter with an assurance. An assurance, a guarantee really, that you and your circumstances cannot separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds us together. Jesus is the one who holds us close to himself. It's really good news, and I'm excited to share it with you, but because it's such good news, let me pray once again before we, we come into this. God, we do pray that you would be our teacher tonight, that you might help us know you a little bit more, that you might assure us, that you might put us at ease through your word tonight. So Lord, continue to free us of anxiety and reveal the fullness of yourself to us as we gather on this night. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, we're going to get into uh, Romans 8, and I've asked Hannah to come back up and, and lead us into this text by reading it out loud for us. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Um, Ryan, go ahead and leave that up there for a second. Um, I want to reflect on this passage by looking at three of the questions that are posed in this text. Don't you love that the Bible asks questions? That the Bible gives us an invitation to consider things a little bit deeper, to consider the, the, the real heart of the matter, the real issue. I love that about our, our Bible, our sacred scriptures. They ask us questions. They invite us to reflect. So the first question is this. What then shall we say in response to all this? Now, it's fair for us to, to ask the question, in response to what? Okay, there are a few verses that, that precede this that talk about 
um, that, that invite us to consider what do we do with this in light of what Jesus has done. And the word that is often used there that has been fought over by Christians for many, many years, about, uh, I don't know, probably about 1900 years, is the word predestination. For those of you that have grown up in the church, you might be familiar with this word. But what I want to boil it down to is this, that when we think of, of predestination, it has primarily to do with what God has already done in Jesus Christ. And it's an expression of what God wants to do in you and in each of us. And that's rescue. That's before you. And Paul's making a big statement here about the power of God to do that. So when this question is posed, what shall we say in response to these things? These things is the power of God that was shown to us in Jesus that says, I long to rescue you. What shall we do in response to a God that says, I love you and want and have rescued you and want to rescue you, want to renew you? That's the question at hand. God is the one who has the power to save. And Jesus shows us that by his voluntarily death, voluntary death on the cross. That's what we're talking about here. Next question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, to try and illustrate this question a little bit more, I want to show you a video of my sons, Carson and Colin, and you'll actually see Wally on the right-hand side of the screen. Wally is 10 months old. My guess is that he, as you, you'll probably be able to tell, he's not quite as invested in this as the two um, older ones. This is actually at Carson's seventh birthday. We went to a Mariner game. And these boys are watching the hydroplane race. Take a look at the way that they do this. What? You're going to be green? Green? All right, I'll be yellow. Yes. Yes. Well, welcome to my life. Welcome to my life. Now, I'm not sure if the audio allowed you to catch this, but Colin obviously was pretty excited to root for the green boat, but I don't know, probably about 20 seconds in, 
he, he sees that, he begins to understand that Carson, his older brother, is also rooting for green. And he turns and he says, no, I'm green. I'm green. And then the rest of the time, Colin starts going, I'm green. I'm green. Okay. Now, I use this to, to illustrate that, and the green boat, in fact, did win, as you could see there at the end. And, and what, I, what do I want to point out here is that there was something in this three-year-old, this, well, I don't know, very passionate three-year-old, um, that, that in some ways kept him from the kind of the full joy of being unified with his brother in in the fact that his boat won. That there's something about sibling rivalry, and my guess is many of you in this room have encountered that to some degree, that that kind of that, that kind of hedged on the whole thing where, where Colin was felt with the, filled with this sense of anxiety. No, I'm the one that wants to win, right? And I know that a lot of us connect with that. But here's the point that I want to make. Okay, if the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in this case, Colin, ultimately, it wasn't that Carson was rooting against him. It was that what, be, what ended up happening is that it was he himself that built this wall. That often, if God is for us, who can be against us? For many of us, the first answer to that question would be ourselves. We somehow trick ourselves into thinking that competition is more real than the love of God. That there somehow can't be two winners. There needs to be some sort of distinction that maybe makes me a little bit more special, a little bit more loved. Carson, we can't both win with green. You see what I'm saying here? How we become the obstacle into living into the fullness of God's love. Now, in the context in which Paul was writing to this group of young Christians uh, in, in Rome, you got to understand they were coming from a bunch of different backgrounds. And they had a lot of different traditions. And as this, this new community was trying to find its identity, a lot of them were bringing some of that baggage and essentially saying, in order for you to be on the winning team, in order for you to look spiritual, you need to pull in from this particular tradition. You need to have a perfect compliance or obedience to this particular law. It was the people, either they themselves or the people close to them, that became this sense of, this is the person against me. Often it is ourselves. And maybe some of the issues around us from people who love us, people who are on our team, that, that feels like it keeps us from God. Finally, the last question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, this is followed by a list of things. It again asked within the form of a question, can any of these things, any of these circumstances, trouble, persecution, hardship, nakedness, danger, or sword, keep us from the love of God? And then we get what I would alert you to is the most beloved no in all of scripture. No, none of those things can keep us from the love of God. Now, the reality is that so many of us and so many of your friends, when they think of Christianity, 
when they think of religion, they think about it as a type of divine buzzkill. Oh, that is this thing that, that answers my questions like, can I go out and get drunk? No. Can I go out and have sex before marriage? No. Can I go, that it essentially gets reduced to, can I go out and do anything fun? No. That's sometimes how the Christian faith gets reduced. But what Paul is trying to show us here by using the word no is really how much God has said yes to you. There is nothing, not nakedness, not famine, nor any circumstance There's no circumstance that you could find yourself in. And I would say this, even a circumstance that is connected to your sin that can keep you from the love of God. You see, God has said no to those circumstances. God said no to the circumstances, not to you and not to your neighbor. That's what God says no to. God in Jesus has said yes to you. So my question for us is this, what does it look like for us to live with this type of assurance in light of the answers to these questions? What does it look like for us to live with confidence, the confidence of this this text that we cannot be separated from the love of God? I want to give you three things as we wrap it up. First, don't empower circumstances with power they don't have. Don't empower circumstances with power they don't have. Often bad things happen and we assume that God at worst is trying to smite us, trying to punish us, trying to teach us a lesson. It's easy to look at circumstances and think that God has left left us, or that there is some sort of force of nature, perhaps even something we would call evil that is out to get, get us. I know that I'm tempted to read some of the things that I see in the news right now. I hear of four million refugees wandering about Central and Western Europe right now. I think of, of millions of acres and thousands of homes being burned in the Western United States, and I think God is not there. I look at the unfavorable circumstances at my, in my own life or perhaps those uh, around me. And I see someone who loses a job, who gets an unfavorable diagnosis or has been praying about something seemingly forever and nothing seems to happen. And I find myself going, come on, God, where are you? What I also can't deny is that I find myself going, God, you promised. You promised. You promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Recently, I had a friend who lost a job that he had been in for a very long time. And I groaned with him about about hearing the loss of his job and this, this big change in his life. And what was interesting is that it wasn't long before he was saying, you know, this might have been the best thing that could have happened to me. And what's really important to to note here is that he was still unemployed when he said this. 
It's not as if all of a sudden the circumstances changed in such a way that he was going, oh, now I'm back in God's favor. No, what it allowed him to see in this major change, in this, in this tremendous moment of brokenness is that God's nearness was more real than he gave it credit for. He was experiencing how God and the community around him, God through the community around him, was actually providing and meeting his every single need. It actually set him free once again to start dreaming about what else he could do instead of merely going and punching the clock day in and day out at a job that he really liked. He was unaware that over the course of several years, the routine of it actually took his ability to dream. Okay, don't empower bad circumstances with power that they don't have. Often, that's a moment for us to rediscover how close God actually is and how eager Jesus is to meet us in those moments of brokenness and pain. Don't empower bad circumstances with power those circumstances don't have. Second, quit trying to separate yourself. My guess is that if, if I were to seriously give us a test and ask us to raise our hands on, on are, you, you, are you your own worst enemy, many of you, if not all of you, would raise your hand. That's what I'm getting at in saying, quit trying to separate yourself from the love of God. Quit trying to convince yourself that there's no way you can be forgiven. And I get it. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. And I still struggle to believe that this promise, that this, this grace and forgiveness is also for me, even though it's so easy for me to stand up and tell you that it's all for you. I get this struggle. You're forgiven. Quit trying to separate yourself from the love of God. You know, I want to share with you from my own story that it was actually this passage, Romans 8, and the very end of this passage that made, that, that really proved to be a bit of a turning point in my own life. The last two verses of this passage say this. This is Romans 8, 38, 39. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, while I grew up growing, uh, going to church, like a lot of students uh, I know and have known over the years, the gospel didn't translate for me beyond church involvement and something that made me well-rounded or that looked good on a resume. So as I came to the University of Washington as a student um, many moons ago, I knew that God, I, I had the sense that I wanted God on my team. And that I had the idea that as long as I did a few things right, if I didn't drink, I didn't have sex, I kept cussing to a minimum, and generally avoided being a jerk, then God would be on my team. And of course, that's a good thing. Well, the problem was, 
as an 18 or 19-year-old, I wasn't very good at avoiding those things. At times, I liked them, and yet there was something in me that craved something more. Well, it was round about the middle of my sophomore year that I encountered these words, what felt like for the first time. I'm pretty sure I had heard them before, but it, it felt like I was hearing them for the first time. And after a particularly rough night in a very rough uh, season of what I like to call, some of you have been around, have heard me use this phrase before, garden variety fraternal hedonism, I found myself going that if I'm going to say that this is true, if I really believe this, then maybe that means something a little bit different than what I've always thought. Maybe even though I'm aware that I, that my behavior comes up well short, that it doesn't actually keep me from God. Maybe I'm really this love. In, through exposure to these words, through the encouragement of some of the guys that I lived with, I began to take all of, all of those proverbial eggs and load them up into this basket of Jesus. I decided that if there was someone that was willing to know me, voluntarily die for me, and make this promise that there's nothing, not even this, this crap that you get caught up in that can separate you from my, my love, that it was worth taking the risk to put all my eggs in that basket. And I'll tell you, since then, not everything has been great. There have been times that have been downright hard, but I can say this, that at every turn, God has proven faithful. It was worth going all in. And that's my final point. Go all in. For somebody who's saying, look, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing that can separate you from me. I will hold you close. I will keep us together. Isn't it worth trying? Isn't it worth trying? Where are you one foot in and one foot out? Where do you try to keep yourself from really living into this victory that God has given us? Go all in on one who has promised your sin is not enough. The sword is not enough. Your circumstances are not enough. Nothing is enough to keep you from experiencing the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. That's good news. Let's pray. God, thank you that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from you. Help us know the reality of this as we encounter another academic year, as we get into environments, as we get into classes, as we get into to things that, that we might think are trying to keep us from you. May we know your nearness every step of the way. May we know your love 
every step of the way. Sensitize us to your spirit in Jesus' name.